Good morning, Castleton Church family. So good to be with you in worship this morning. If you're new to Castleton, you may be wondering, why is it that the preacher is up on the video and maybe even saw me in the building wearing a mask today? And uh, that's just a little behind the curtain on that. That's having to do with my asthmatic condition, some restrictions I have related to that and COVID. Uh, I don't love it but it does allow me to continue my ministry of the word. So thank you for your grace in the matter. I'm very excited for us to be back in our series on 1 Kings this morning. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 9. The next few weeks, we'll finish up our series, uh, getting to the end of Solomon's um, part of 1 Kings. Um, And then we'll enter the Advent season, and we'll have a, a series looking at the coming of King Jesus from Isaiah. Very much looking forward to that lead up to Christmas together as a church. This morning, our text is 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 28. 1 Kings 9, verses 1 through 28. This is what scripture says. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments, my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them and served them, Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the the house of the Lord and the house of the, uh, the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee, But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. 
And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the millow and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Horon and Baalath and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. All the peoples who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, and their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers. They were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the millow. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord making offerings with it before the Lord, so he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Enzion Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents and they brought it to King Solomon. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Oh Jesus, would you, would you our King, would you speak to our hearts today by your word? Would you help us to value steady, sturdy faithfulness? over all the success the world can offer. Help us to choose you today, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Choices, choices, choices. So many choices that you might have what is sometimes called decision fatigue. We're just coming on the heels of a presidential election where everyone was vying for your choice in the ballot box. That life is filled with choices, many of them small, like what you'll eat for lunch today, some of them much more significant. Think about what happened on March the 30th, 1970. A man named Ogden Phillips won a coin flip to be able to choose the offspring of uh, a thoroughbred pair that were sure to produce the next great racing horse. He had a choice of foals, which one he would choose to lead him into racing glory. He recalls that day looking down and seeing one horse that looked knobby-kneed and thin. The other horse looked healthy, a sure thing, certainly one that would have the speed that he would need. 
He chose that horse, of course, but it turned out his choice would not stand the test of time. The horse he chose, in his own words, well, it couldn't even outrun him. But the other horse, that knobby-kneed thin one, would grow up to be the horse Secretariat. Arguably the greatest racehorse that ever lived, a triple crown winner. Some choices, only in retrospect you realize just how impactful and important they might be. We have just such a choice in our text this morning. King Solomon is given a choice from God, the second choice that God has given him in this book. And it will be the difference between lasting fruitfulness in his kingdom or ruin and a fall so great it will become legendary. As we look at his fateful choice, we will ourselves learn a lesson, something that all Christians must know, that God wants sturdy, steady faithfulness, not flashy, fleeting success. That we need to be a people marked by faithfulness, not success to be right in God's eyes. We'll see this as we look through this passage, which is really broken up into two sections. First, in verses 1 through 9, we'll see Solomon's second choice. Solomon's second choice. Then, in verses 10 through 18, we'll see Solomon's success and splendor. Solomon's success and splendor. Let's begin in verses 1 through 9. Solomon's second choice. Since it's been a little while since we've been in the book of 1 Kings, allow me to reacquaint you with the book. Uh, we just finished off a section that ran all the way back to chapter 3. And the, our passage today in chapter 9 is the bookend that started back then in chapter 3. Maybe you remember that time if you were with us. Uh, through much palace politics and blood sport, Solomon ascended to the throne of his father David. It was not a sure thing, and at many points it looked as if he would end up in the dustbin of history. But just as God promised, Solomon ended up inheriting his father's throne. After the dust had settled and all of his enemies had been dealt with, Solomon then had a meeting with God. It was at a place named Gibeon. He was in the midst of worship, and God showed up and offered Solomon a choice. He said, Solomon, ask anything you want, and I will give it to you. Solomon chose well on that day. He asked God for the wisdom to rule his people well, to, to govern as king. God was so pleased that Solomon didn't ask for riches or fame or all the things that the worldly kings are after that he gave Solomon what he asked and so much more. He promised to make him the wisest king that ever lived. And in addition to that, for his glory and fame and wealth to grow and grow and grow. The chapters that follow show as that process happens for Solomon. He uses his God-given wisdom to bring justice to the kingdom, to usher in an era of peace, and then to begin building. He built a palace for himself, a palace for his wife, and then he built the very temple of God. Well, the building of the temple dominates those chapters 3 through 8. 
And uh, all of chapter 8 was about that completed temple being dedicated to God and God moving into that temple. Well, now we pick up in the beginning of chapter 9 with that temple completed and Solomon and his God having a second meeting. We're told in verse 1 that as soon as he had finished building the house of the Lord and everything he wanted to build, that's the the setting, it's after it's built. Then in verse 2, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. There's a parallel intended to be seen here to, to say this is capping off this section of the narrative. Well, this meeting between God and Solomon starts off well. In verse 3, we're told that God tells Solomon that he has accepted the temple that Solomon built for him. The very thing that Solomon expended so much wealth and so much of his time on, he got, has come to fruition. God has moved into and accepted his temple. He even promises to consecrate this temple and put his name to live there forever. But that is not all that God has to say to Solomon. No, there is the matter of a choice. A choice that Solomon must make that will decide the fate of his kingdom and the Davidic dynasty. It's a choice between faithfulness and seeking after his own fortune. In verses 4 through 5, you see the positive side of this choice, uh, but it is a if-then statement. Read with me verse 4. And as for you, if you will walk before me. See that if? If Solomon meets these conditions, what are those conditions? Well, essentially, they are faithfulness to God and to the things that God has laid out for his relationship with his king. They're described as uprightness, as walking with God, that is his life being in step with God. And even more than all those things, is it's marked by the same sort of heart for God that his father David had. God says, if, if you are faithful, Solomon, this is what will happen. Then, in verse 5, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. Solomon, if you are faithful, your dynasty will last forever. It will endure the test of time. That's the positive side. But on the flip side is an ominous warning. In verses 6 through 9, we get another if-then statement. If Solomon chooses not to be faithful. Verse 6, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then, verse 7, well then the wheels on the bus will come falling off. Everything will go wrong. God tells Solomon that the people will be taken out of the land that they have been given. He tells them that their reputation will be ruined. All the nations will know of God's punishment and the ruin of their nation. He tells them that that glorious temple that he has built, it will be ground to dust. There will be nothing left of it. And in the end, Israel and the glory of King Solomon would fade into a warning 
a warning that parents would use to scare their children into obedience. The stakes are incredibly high. Solomon has before him the choice of faithfulness and enduring fruitfulness for the kingdom or faithlessness and ultimate failure. What will he choose? What will be the fate of the kingdom? What will happen to God's people? There are dark, ominous clouds hanging over this choice. But even as our hearts might start to be overwhelmed by that, just as quickly, those clouds are chased away. Because in verse 10 and through 28, it's as if the glory and the the glittering nature of Solomon's success and splendor overshadow this choice, at least for a moment. In verses 10 through 28, our attention turns away from Solomon's second choice and turns, at least for a moment, to Solomon's success and his splendor. You can think of this section a little bit like the top part of a Wikipedia page for someone that is famous. You you know, if you go to Wikipedia and you look up Abraham Lincoln, uh, the the page will go on for for like a wall of text if you scroll down enough. But right at the top, usually you have at least a, a few short paragraphs, maybe some bullet points outlining the most significant things of a particular famous person or a period of time. Well, the bullet points that were chosen for Solomon's life must have been difficult to choose because there were many, many things noteworthy about King Solomon's reign. And this 20-year period is undoubtedly one marked by success. It is a splendorous time for God's king. In verses 10 through 14, we see that Solomon is a dynamo at diplomacy. We retrace the relationship with him and the king of Tyre, a guy named Hiram. Uh, He and Solomon had made an alliance, and in so doing, they had basically cornered the market on trade in their region. They had all the major arteries and roads and the sea covered, which meant if you were going to do any sort of economic activity, they were going to get a piece of the pie. And all that meant that their their, uh, heaps of gold kept on piling up and growing. They became richer and richer in their friendship and partnership together. But in, four, in 10 through 14, we see a different side to that relationship. It, it turns out, even though they're both fabulously wealthy at this point, Solomon can't help but resist taking a bigger piece of the pie. Hiram had, been, had an arrangement where Solomon would pay him in food for the goods and uh, the riches that he gave to Solomon, Uh, But Solomon apparently at some point decided to stop doing that. And instead he gave Hiram a series of cities near their border. Well, there's only one problem with that. It turns out those cities were worthless. No good at all. The region's called Kabul, which as best we can tell, means worthless. But because his friendship with Solomon is so important and their arrangements are so lucrative... Hiram really doesn't have much he can do but complain. You might say that enough gold can gloss over even some pretty severe offenses. 
Well, at the end of this, notice in verse 14, the note here is how much gold it is. Hiram sent to the king 120 talents of gold. That is tons and tons of gold gave them every reason in the world to stay at peace with each other. But not only do we see him being dynamic in his diplomacy, he's also brilliant in his building projects. In verses 15 through 19, uh, Solomon goes about building out Jerusalem. He expands its borders, builds up its walls, makes it into a more splendid city than even his great king, Father David, did before him. It's not just Jerusalem, though. You can go across his kingdom. Solomon builds up fortresses and towns. He, he makes places to store his wealth. He makes uh, places to defend his kingdom. He is a building sort of king, and he has a special sort of brilliance when it comes to these building projects. I love the way that the, the narrator says, anything that he wanted to build, he built. This was a man that had a lot, long list of accomplishments to his name in bricks and mortar. One of those building projects is a little odd. It's a, a city that Pharaoh burned down and gave to his daughter as a dowry. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'm glad I don't have in-laws quite like that that are known for sacking cities. But we note that Solomon takes the gift and immediately he turns around and builds it back up to prosperity. His list of accomplishments goes beyond the building projects. He also provides luxury for the royal first lady. You see that in verse 24? His wife, Pharaoh's daughter, she got her own palace. She also got something called the Milla. We don't know exactly what that is. Maybe some sort of beautiful plateau to overlook the city from. Whatever it was, it was notable enough that you could refer to it just by the name and everyone knew what you meant. It was expected for kings to be able to lavish luxury on their wives, and King Solomon outdid them all. You can match that lavish luxury for his wife with his magnificence in mad managing a difficult workforce in verses 20 through 23. Uh, huge projects require huge amounts of labor. Where did he get that labor? Well, he took all the peoples of the land that was the conquered peoples that had opposed Israel during the conquest. He took them and he made them into slave labor. Now he didn't do that for the Israelites. The Israelites had the privilege of serving Solomon through drafted status. Uh, there was a requirement upon them to become his servants. Now I don't think there were many smiles when someone found out they had the great honor of serving in Solomon's building projects. And yet, let's recognize, as unhappy as the Israelites may have been over that, that's nothing compared to what the conquered peoples of the land must have felt. Now, I know today, especially, the idea of using slave labor seems unthinkable to us. We have to be careful not to push back our modern uh, our, our modern view of things on a text that was written thousands of years ago. Uh, now, to be clear, the text does not commend the practice of slave labor here. It's not saying we should go out and use slaves to accomplish things. 
But it's also not condemning the practice here. This is not saying this is something Solomon did wrong, although maybe you could make that case from other parts of Scripture. It's also worth noting that this was expected behavior for kings back then, that if you conquered a land, you were expected to use their people as slaves or, in worst cases, to kill every one of them to the person. With all that said... This is not the place for us to draw human resource principles from. The the point is this is how Solomon accomplished these huge building projects. The fact that he avoided revolt and managed to keep peace with so much forced labor is an incredible managerial task. You can match that managerial magnificence with his positively pious leadership of the nation. In verse 25, we're told that three times a year, he led the people in worship. He was in front of the people, leading them in their national worship times. Uh, Now, uh, Dr. Paul House uh, thinks that this is very likely a reference to the uh, Festival of Weeks, uh, the Festival of Tabernacles, as well as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Uh, Those would have been uh, festivals that all the Israelites were required to participate in. And at those moments, when they all come together, their pious king was in front of them, leading them in worship to God. You can add to all these things that note in 26 to 28. Solomon was an intrepid importer of goods. He, He sent Uh, the royal navy off to far off lands to find the riches of the nations to bring them back to fill his storehouses even further. Once again, you see that relationship with Hiram coming to the forefront. Solomon builds the ships. Hiram provides the sailors and the know-how and they both end up with heaps and heaps of gold as a result. The picture that is drawn here is one of splendor and success. This is the golden age. The golden age for God's people and the golden age for their king Solomon. Everything he touches seems to go well. His fame and his fortune seem like they will continue to grow without end. And yet for as bright as this period is, as obvious as his glory and splendor are. You can't help but wonder, might that choice from earlier in the passage, might that, those dark clouds reappear? Might ominous signs be be present that this prosperity won't last? One commentator, commentator by the name of Dale Ralph Davis said it this way, He said that verses 1 through 9 tower over verses 10 through 28 like Mount Rushmore looking down upon them. Solomon's choice, it turns out, is far more important than his splendor and his success. And think about the people that originally would have read this book. They were God's people in exile. 
They were the people that had been torn from their land, had seen that grand temple ground down into dust, and had become that warning story that people told their kids to scare them into obedience. To people like that, Solomon's splendor wouldn't seem so impressive. But Solomon's faithfulness, well, that was a much more important matter. So brothers and sisters, what should we take from this text that shows us the heights of glory of King Solomon and yet also reminds us of that ominous choice that will carry us to the end of his eventual fall? Well, let me suggest three lines of application for us this morning. The first is that we should aspire to sturdy, steady faithfulness not flashy, fleeting success. That Christians should know that God values more sturdy, steady faithfulness than flashy, fleeting success. Solomon ultimately would not choose well, as we'll see in chapter 11. He would, in fact, seek his own fame, his own fortune, his own pleasures, and in so doing, abandon his God and bring all of the warnings down upon the head of him and his people. Solomon serves as a warning that success in this world is no guarantee we are right with God. Dr. Phil Riken said it well. He said, the more we have of what this world has to offer, the easier it is to think we are on the right track even when we are wandering down the road to idolatry. What really counts in life is not academic success or athletic accomplishments or a bigger bank account or reaching the top of our profession or taking pride in our family, but the spiritual choice we make in our hearts for God or against him. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that your life, your life could be pleasing to God without being a flashy success in the eyes of the world. See, to re return to that horse secretariat, I think most Christians living in the time we do have the temptation in our hearts to think that we need to be the prize-winning racehorse to be pleasing to God. That we need to go from one spiritual victory to the next, accomplishing great things that will be remembered for all eternity. But realize that most of the time, Christianity is more like a plodding, slow and steady plow horse. The Christian life very rarely is about speed and sizzle. So much more often it is about day by day, step by step, steady, sturdy steps following Jesus. Jesus himself told us to expect this. John 15, 16, he told us our, we will bear fruit if we're his disciples, but it's a certain type of fruit. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus is after the sort of Christian life that lasts the test of time. The steady, sturdy obedience that sticks with Jesus no matter what. Not the sizzle 
and the speed and all the things that seem like they are success in the world's eyes. Uh, Students, I, I wonder this morning, do you feel discouraged because you don't think there's anything particularly noteworthy about your life? Maybe you're not the most popular or the best looking. Maybe you're not the smartest. Maybe you don't have the best clothes in your circle of friends. Maybe you don't have all that many friends altogether. The world would tell you that must mean that your life isn't really worth much. But not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, if you live a life faithful to Jesus, even an unremarkable life faithful to Jesus, well, that is a life that's worth living. That is a life that God is pleased with. And that is a life, even if this world doesn't recognize it in heaven, is greatly esteemed. Students, a word of advice to you. When you're looking for people to emulate in your Christian life, don't don't look for the latest and greatest Christian celebrity, whoever has the most followers on Twitter. Find someone that you know has been a Christian for a long time and that you know, even if their life might seem unremarkable, that it is a faithful life to Jesus. Maybe that's a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle. Maybe it's someone in our church. Find someone that you know has walked with Jesus a long time and model model your life after theirs. To those of us with a little more age under our belts, maybe even with some gray hairs on our heads, who have been walking with Jesus a long time, realize that there's a challenge embedded in there for each of us too. Is there the sort of steady, sturdy, obedience to Jesus visible in your life that a student could in fact follow after the way you follow Jesus I remember someone who had achieved great worldly success she was a pioneer in the banking industry uh, a woman that rose to the top of an industry that had a very prominent glass ceiling at the time she she made it to the cover of important Uh, magazines in the banking and financial world. If she had continued her career, there's no doubt the interviews would have kept pouring in. Certainly she would have acquired lots of material wealth. But she chose a different path. She decided to leave her job and to become an administrator in a church, to work in the back office, to do so humbly, to serve over the long haul. She's been doing it for decades. And if you met her today, you would have no clue about her earthly success. Brothers and sisters, that sort of long, sturdy, steady obedience is what the Christian life is meant to look like. Don't be fooled by the siren call of success that the world would put in front of us. Second line of application. Realize that faithfulness to Jesus is a daily choice. Faithfulness to Jesus is a daily choice. Solomon is surely an example of someone who started very well and yet ended very poorly. He chose well the first time. But this second weighty choice, well, well, not so much. And it turns out there were lots of smaller choices along the way that added up to his poor choice on that second opportunity God gave him to be faithful. 
realize as Christians following King Jesus, we do not live on yesterday's grace or yesterday's faithfulness. Just as God's mercies are new each morning, our choice to follow Jesus must also be renewed. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus tells us as much. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Yes, it's true. You believe in Jesus and are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Yes, it's true. You choose Jesus once and your eternity, in, your eternity is forever with him. It's true. He has chosen you from before the foundations of the earth. And he does not lose a single one of his sheep. And yet, brothers and sisters, it's also true that Christians choose Jesus again and again and again. We choose Jesus over all the things the world offers to us. And by our lives of faithfulness, that steady, sturdy sort of faithfulness that lasts, people will see the value of our Savior. Brothers and sisters, will you choose Jesus tomorrow morning and every morning that follows after? When you have the choice between hitting the snooze button or getting up, and spending time with the Lord in quiet time, will you choose Jesus? When you have the choice between climbing the corporate ladder or investing in the discipleship of your children, will you choose Jesus? When you get a raise, however small it may be, will you choose to spend on yourself? Or will you choose to spend yourself because you choose Jesus? Brothers and sisters, your life is made up of thousands and thousands of little tiny choices, each of them pointing to the big choice. Either you choose Jesus or you choose the world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it may well be that you have never chosen Jesus, that you have never yourself decided not to live for yourself, but to give up the hope that you could ever make yourself right before God and find salvation in Jesus Christ. If that's the case, friend, today can be the day that you can follow after King Jesus. It's not because of anything that you've done to deserve it. No, Jesus provides all that you need to be right with God as a gift. He gave his life on a cross, willingly being murdered so that he could bear the penalty that you deserved. By him doing that, he makes possible the forgiveness of your sins. That if you put your trust in him, there is a, a guarantee that God will wipe away every sin that you have ever committed. That you will forever be right with God. He also offers you, on the road to follow him, many difficulties. He says it will be a life of dying to your old self. But along the way, as you die to yourself, that you will find more joy and more peace and more satisfaction than you ever could find in this world. Friend, if you have not put your trust in Jesus, today, make the choice. Be someone that picks up your cross and follows him. If you don't know how to do that, after the service, you can come talk to me or any of our staff members. We would love to introduce you to King Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, let's recognize that even as we must choose Jesus each day, 
None of us does this perfectly. Our hearts are fickle. Indwelling sin in the flesh blinds us, even when our purest of motives. And if we look carefully enough, we can all find areas where we have failed to choose Jesus and instead sought after the things of this world. And that's why we need our third line of application. We need to be made glad by our faithful king. We need to allow our hearts to be made glad by our faithful King Jesus. You see, Solomon, all of his fame and fortune faded. Because of Solomon's lack of faithfulness, God's people suffered. And yet a better king than Solomon came, another son of David named Jesus Christ. He came with all the fame and fortune of heaven that he left behind to come rescue his people from their plight. Jesus deserved all the things that were already in this world. At one point, he was even offered an easy road to the riches and rulership over it by the devil, and yet he refused because he must obey the way his father had sent him to this world to go to the cross Jesus again and again chose obedience and faithfulness to his father over the flash and the pan sort of success that the world values. Instead of luxury, Jesus experienced agony. Instead of honor, he was humiliated. Instead of long life, he got an early death. But in all those things, brothers and sisters, he secured the eternal prosperity and fruitfulness for his people. King Jesus now sits on a throne that will never fade over an eternal kingdom filled with citizens that will live under his rulership forever. And brothers and sisters, the good news is that our citizen in that our citizenship in that kingdom it's not based on our ability to obey, obey well enough. It's based on his ability to keep us, to keep us faithful to the end. So brothers and sisters, don't seek after the sort of success that the world values. Don't think that fame and fortune and all the things that glitter in this world will somehow satisfy you or make you right with God. Be content with steady sturdy faithfulness to Jesus. That is a life you won't be disappointed in. I love Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead. It tells the story of a rural pastor near the end of his life. He's, ex he's spent his life in this little forgotten town, ministering faithfully in a rundown old church. He has no fame or fortune. Within a few years, his name will largely be forgotten. Much of the book is spent reflecting on the fleeting nature of life and how small his efforts seem in the grand scheme of things. And yet, as he draws close to his death, he reflects on how faithfulness Faithfulness in the name of Jesus is a life 
well lived. It turns out that the author is using that town as a bit of an image to describe that unremarkable, faithful Christian life. Near the end, this is what he says. He says, to me, it seems rather Christ-like to be as unadorned as this place is, as little regarded. I can't help imagining that you will leave sooner or later, and it's fine if you've done that or if you mean to do that. This whole town does look like whatever hope becomes after it begins to weary a little, then weary a little more. But hope deferred is still hope. I love this town. I think sometimes of going into the ground here as a last wild gesture of love. I too will smolder away the time until the great and general incandescence. Brothers and sisters, remember God. God is not interested in the flashy, fleeting success of this world. No, he wants sturdy, unremarkable faithfulness to Jesus. That is a life that's worth living, and that is a life that you will never be disappointed in. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for being a king worth being glad over. Would you now, would you help to reorient our hearts away from all the things that seem like success in this world? Help us to instead take steady, sturdy steps of faithfulness after you. Step by step, day by day, choosing you every day that you give us in this world. Would our lives be pleasing to you? And even if the world thinks they are unremarkable, Jesus, would our lives speak of how worthy you are? We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.